Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Rick here from Fueled by the Outdoors, and I'm here to tell you about a wonderful company, Saddies custom ammunition and gun works. Aaron Satterfield and his family have been turning out some awesome game loads lately. Uh, I've been using the Saddies Fatties uh, turkey loads and I gotta tell you, they stop a bird dead. Chris uh, used a 20 gauge this year, I used the 12, Josh used a 20, and uh, my son actually killed one with a 410 this year with uh, one of the Saddies loads, and my god do they put the birds down like crazy. Aaron Satterfield and his family have a wide ranging array of ammunition custom game loads, predator loads, turkey loads, the saddies fatty, and also they do gun work. Please get a hold of them with any questions that you have in terms of your custom ammunition needs. Go to saddiesllc.com. That's S-A-T-T-I-E-S-L-L-C.com and tell them that Rick from Fueled by the Outdoors sent you. down baby oh my gosh that was freaking awesome this is my first public land buck this is my second set of the season i can't oh my gosh i just heard him fall i just heard him fall uh. i just shot my kentucky buck Fueled by the Outdoors, I'm your host Rick Cates, and this episode today is very special. It is one of our panel members from the Mobile Hunters Expo. This is uh, their way of killing and hunting big deer, so I'm going to shut up and let you guys listen. Here you go. All right, sounds like we're ready to go. So thanks everybody for listening in. With e-scouting, there are a million different rabbit holes to potentially go down. So I don't know where everybody's at in terms of how familiar they are with certain tools, certain habitat types. There's obviously going to be a lot of variance there. So what I wanted to do today is at least to start with, break down some of the common tools that I'll use, different types of maps, uh, different sources of imagery, and just kind of what you can learn from them, what they are, how they're put together. And so... Once we have that baseline established, we can, which can take as long as we want it to, then what I'll probably do is maybe give some examples or preferably if anybody out there has examples or questions of, well, what do you look for in a certain habitat type, then we can pick one out and just go over it live. So I'm going to swap over to a quick presentation just to get through some of the basics. And, you know, one thing I really want to stress on the front end here is that I e-scout quite a bit, and I used to e-scout even more 
I still feel like I do it a lot, but the priority that I put on it is still kind of secondary to the boots on the ground. Like this, it's still such an important part to actually confirm what you're seeing when you're looking on the computer and verify it in real time because you might be looking at the same thing that 10 other guys are on say an out of state trip. And also you might be misinterpreting something that you know one of you know Dan or somebody else tells you to look for and if you haven't seen it on foot you might be kind of missing the bigger picture and sometimes little secondary features end up being just as good if not better than the primary ones that you look for so definitely use it as a good pre-planning tool before you ever hit the woods to just kind of make your plan more efficient but then once you actually dive in and get some boots in the ground then come back and you know back and forth between those two to be able to ultimately give your best chance of success. Uh, do you search more for a specific habitat before you do? Or like, I'm going to hunt this area, so now I'm going to hunt for this habitat? Or do you say, well, I'm going to be in Michigan. Where do they have this type of habitat? So you, great question. Do you prefer hunting? And with travel hunting in particular, because you have unlimited options of the type of habitat you could look for, you know, it's like, oh, I'm going to a certain state. Do I want to try and find a habitat that I'm familiar with? Or do I just stick with what I've got and try and figure it out from there? So I guess it kind of depends, right? If I'm going for an early season hunt, I might search out certain types of habitat that are specific for being successful early season. Places where food might be a little bit more isolated, for instance. Places where, like, let's say, you know, cattail marsh example, you have food sources that can be very, very isolated. Once the acorns start dropping, they tend to only be in certain locations. And so if deer have been feeding on, say, soybeans in a nearby ag field, and then the acorns start falling, well, now they're gonna be really concentrated in those areas for as long as that food source is active. If I go out to like a Western state, like a Dakota, then it becomes a, a little bit more challenging because there's food everywhere. And a lot of times that early, those deer are bachelored up in areas that you might not even have access to. And so I might choose to say, well, maybe I'm not going to go to that type of habitat early in the season. Maybe I'll go back to that place if I'm doing like a rut trip. So I'll really try and hone in on as much as possible a habitat type that is specific to the time I think I can be successful. But there's places locally that I'm just learning regardless. And in those areas, I'm like, well, I know what that habitat is, so I'll try and learn how the deer are using it throughout the year. When it comes to e-scouting, some of the biggest things that I did that I think hurt me early on, kind of what I alluded to earlier, putting too much reliance on it, not checking as much with the boots on the ground. I find the most successful I am is when I can go back and forth, back and forth. And every time you're learning something, some little fine detail when you're actually in the woods, and then you look back at the big picture and figure out how that all relates back together. So. The more iterations I go through of that, the more refined my overall understanding of what the deer are doing in that area becomes. Using outdated imagery can be a big one too. We'll spend some time on that for sure, kind of showing you guys what to look for and what the differences are between different uh, imagery sources. And then kind of like I alluded to earlier, not being able to discern the time of year context. You can find really good aerial imagery and see deer trails going through you know, tall grass or CRP or whatever. And you think like, man, that'd be a great spot. But if they're not doing that during the time of year that you're gonna be hunting there, then it's kind of irrelevant. And you might actually be putting too much emphasis on what you're seeing on the screen. Whereas you would have been better off just looking in real time.
So aerial imagery is not the same as satellite. A lot of times people use those two terms interchangeably, but they literally are like they sound. Aerial imagery comes from either airplanes, helicopters, or drones flying over in the atmosphere, taking higher resolution photos. They might have a grid that they go and fly. Uh, it might be based off of a contract that they have to get updated imagery for a certain area. Whereas satellite is, you know, you know, in orbit, we're getting much further distance photos, usually not as high of resolution. So aerial is almost always going to be better and higher resolution if you can have access to it. Here's an example of how aerial imagery can benefit. I know this picture is kind of small, but uh, we can blow it up on the big map later if we get to that. This is a river bottom area, and occasionally this place will flood. And this is pretty high resolution imagery, but what I can't necessarily tell from this particular photo, which was from September 10th, 2022, I can't tell what the highest parts of that landscape are. If I look at this photo from May 6, 2022, I can see leaf off imagery, which is great. And it gives me, again, a little bit better picture of what the water's doing underneath the timber. And if I zoom into that further, I can oftentimes start to see deer trails going through that taller grass in that river bottom. But if I go to this next photo here, this is from April this spring. The whole place is flooded, right? But what I can learn from this photo, even if it doesn't look like that when I'm hunting, I can say, if this thing's covered in water, where are the places that still have that high ground? And then you can log that into your memory bank for where if you have either a really wet year or you just want to see where some of that core bedding might be where they don't have to shift around based on what the water conditions are doing, being able to find a picture like that can help you overall quite a bit. Here's another example with aerial imagery in a fall view. And sometimes the fall views are kind of helpful because you can see the tree canopies and if you get enough experience seeing an actual tree, seeing what type it is, and then looking at what that looked like on the map, you can start to pick out what certain tree species are just by looking at the aerial photo for places you haven't been. Like oak trees, for instance, will have a really you know, consistent looking canopy a lot of times. And in this photo, this one again is from April of this year. And you can see in this one more so than the other one, you can see the deer trails that are starting to go through that marsh grass going from you know, pocket of timber to pocket of timber. But what you can also kind of see in this photo is just a difference in understory. If you look at that big block of timber on the right, it's got more sporadic looking tree canopies and it's got kind of that reddish tone underneath. Whereas if you go further to the lower left, you don't see that quite as much. And what you can get from that information is that that area on the lower left, it's got generally higher stem count. It's got usually smaller trees. It's a little bit thicker. If you were to walk through that early season, it's going to be really thick. It's, you know, you're not going to be able to see much. But deer might be using that quite a bit as cover. Whereas that place on the upper right, that's the type of area where you could walk through there in September and be able to see clear through across the entire thing all the way to the other side. But there's very commonly oak trees and food sources on that type of land. So I might be able to look at a place like this and say, well, I bet they're going to be feeding on white oaks if they're dropping on that landscape on the upper right. But they're going to get there from this place in the lower left. They're probably going to be bedding down in this pocket to the southwest and moving up in that direction. 
And then from that, I can go verify it with boots on the ground, figure out exactly where those beds are, and then try and figure out access winds and when and where I would hunt it. Another example here of aerial imagery, just showing how you can kind of spin the photo sometimes. I switched it off from just north up. And you can get those trees sometimes aligned to where they're just perfectly vertical. And then you can see the shadows coming off and really be able to see exactly how tall certain trees are. And maybe even from the shadow, be able to see branches coming off and be like, oh yeah, I could probably, you know, this is about 15 foot up, I could put a stand in there. Now, satellite imagery, like I mentioned, is usually not as high resolution, but a lot of places it's your only option. So here I have images all taken in the same exact location, just with different source satellite imagery. And you could all look at this map and say, well, obviously the one on the upper left is, is good, right? But if that isn't what your app or your you know, source of whatever you're using has, then you could be a little bit behind the game. And in the past, I used Google Earth quite a bit just to see different historical images and see what's out there. And there are a lot of free sources for different imagery. So if you, you know, even if you don't want to spend a lot of money, if you want to see what else is out there, looking at sources like Google Earth, looking at just Googling county website data, a lot of times specific counties will fly over and get aerial imagery that's going to be a lot better than the satellite you're able to get. The only place you're going to find that is on that county or state website. All these images are from the Spartan Forge app, so they have the option to choose from different satellite images at any given location, plus the aerial if it's available. And this again is showing an example of how the photo on the left is aerial and it's higher resolution, and you can see the deer trails a little bit better, but the satellite view on the right does something that's also kind of unique in that it's a little bit higher contrast, and because there was foliage on the tree during that time, you can actually see the shadows, and it just helps you pick out some of those taller treetops. The photo on the left, it's kind of tough for me to tell just at first glance, even though it's very high resolution. Uh, is that brush or is that kind of mature timber? I got to zoom in a little bit more and pick it apart a little bit, but the photo on the right is just a lot easier to pick that out right at first glance. So it's really nice to be able to bounce back and forth between different imagery styles. Now, just about everybody's familiar with topo maps, I would imagine. I really don't use them anymore. There's much better ways generally to look at how the landscape changes. Sometimes they can be nice to see where you know, old historical four-wheel drive trails and things of that nature are, or you might find some old engineering data if you had like a watershed and, and there's stuff that's located on that map that you might not find normally just looking at um, your hunting maps. But generally speaking, that's about at least all I really use them for anymore. The green stuff is intended to be timber. The white is intended to be more open field. But oftentimes, it's outdated and not super precise. This is what I tend to use now more often when I'm looking at trying to figure out what the elevation is doing. This is called LIDAR. You can kind of think of it like a sonar when you're fishing. right? You're sending down those those pulses, it's bouncing off the bottom or off a of fish or off of vegetation or whatever, and it's coming back and the sonar unit's taking that information and then showing you what's actually on there based on how long it took for that pulse to come back. And this is very similar, except instead of sonar, they're using laser. They're using what's called LIDAR. Uh, it stands for light detection and ranging. And in a lot of areas, the resolution on this is down to like one meter. You know, one to three meter resolution is very common. And they'll take that data that comes back from the lasers 
and they'll just apply like an artificial sun to just to give it some shadow. And then you get a picture like that one on the left here. This is just showing some examples of details that you can see on LiDAR that you would never really be able to see very well with a standard topo map. On the left there, you can see the top of a ridge that's just littered with boulders. I think this was from Pennsylvania, and it's very commonly very rocky terrain up in some of those hill areas. And you can also see what looks like a bit of a bench on the side. It's probably an old logging road or something along those lines, maybe an old access trail with a couple little seeps coming down off of it. So for being able to figure out well, where might deer be bedding in relation to you know, hill outcroppings or benches that you might be able to find a rub line or a scrape line, LiDAR is super helpful for that because you might just be looking at you know, a forest of green if you were just looking at either a topo map or a, you know, an aerial photo. Image on the right is showing a steep cut drainage. You know, sometimes those drainages would be very shallow and sometimes they'd be really steep. You can look at something like that and say, man, if I was going to try and cross from one hillside to the other, like, that's going to be a little bit of a challenge. Like, I might have to drop down five or six feet in elevation, kind of climb down with the roots and then cross over. It's probably going to have a lot of, you know, fallen timber and debris in it and then climb back up and out and get out of it. But you can also use that as a helpful aid, too, because if you see that or even more extreme examples, you might find that at the top end, there's a little area where it flattens out, where the, the cut starts. And those are almost always areas that can be really good pinch points when deer are crossing around from one area to the other because they're avoiding those vertical faces. And topo maps just don't have the resolution to be able to show you that much detail. Here's another example as well. I'm sure we're all familiar with the hybrid view shown on the right where we have, in this case, 10-foot contours and the normal satellite leaf-on imagery compared to the LiDAR on the left. And you can see so much more resolution. You can see how we have that logging road that kind of cuts up and over. You can see how that hillside just has almost like a ledge to it and it falls off on either side. And we got that steep ledge hooking around and underneath that nice top ridge line, even with a little bit of boulders up on the top that you can see. Now you can start figuring out like, okay, if I have that versus another hill that might've looked similar, but this one's got way more aggressive terrain to it. If I'm on a rut hunt, well, that looks pretty interesting because that's going to really define deer moon a lot more than if it was just a gradual slope. Another example here, just kind of showing how you can use it as a route planning tool. In this place, if you were at the bottom of the hill and you're thinking, what's the best way for me to get up to the top? If it's a really steep hill, you could just bushwhack up to the top. You might not know how thick the vegetation is or exactly what that grade is, how steep it is, but you're probably going to get to the top. But if you're also looking at that and you're like, oh, look at that, there's this little logging road that cuts up at a nice angle. That's probably a pretty shallow grade because it's intended for vehicles to go up and down on. That's going to be a little bit probably easier as well as maybe quieter route, depending on how much time you gave yourself to go in. A lot of times when I'm turkey hunting, like let's say I roost a bird up on that, that uh, knob. I'm thinking, oh, what's the best way to get in there? You know, three in the morning. I've never been up on that hill before. If I see that, it's like, oh, I'll just go walk up that logging road, and it won't matter because I'm not going to be using a headlamp if I'm getting in on a roosted bird. I'll just walk up that, get up and around them, and then I'll be able to set up on the roost. So I use it quite a bit as a, a route planning tool, especially in bluff country. Another tool that you can use as a method of telling you how steep the slope is is slope angle shading. So with the slope angle shading, 
regardless of if you're using LiDAR or a topo background or a satellite background, you can see what the grade is in any of those backgrounds and be able to tell over time like how easy it is to be able to traverse and you can use it to find pinch points. In this example shown on the screen, you can see on the top we have the key that's showing, you know, basically 10, 15 degrees, it's not even shaded. 20 degrees starts to get yellow, and then we get all the way up to like 50, 60 degrees when it starts to get purple. And I know from experience hunting in this area, when you got purple, this is bluff country, it's a bluff, it's vertical, you're not going to be able to traverse it. But where you got the edges of those, where you have, say, like an area of purple that goes out into an area of yellow, you might be able to find a gap especially goes like purple, yellow, purple, over like a you know, 15 yard span or something, that's almost always gonna be a really good funnel to be able to find. And you can see that somewhat in the LiDAR too, but sometimes when you're just looking at it from a 10,000 foot view and you're looking for habitat types that you're familiar with, or you're looking for a specific thing, sometimes using the slope angle shading can really give you a good feel for it. And sometimes when you're just looking at the LiDAR all by itself, you don't really get a feel for how steep it is. You know that it's an incline, but is it, you know, 20% grade, is it 40% grade? If you slap on the slope angle shade, you'll be able to tell that really fast. 3D, I would imagine a lot of people are familiar with. Google Earth's had 3D out for a long time, and now other apps are starting to utilize it as well. In this particular view, I have a 3D map that's also exaggerated, stretched out beyond what it normally would look like in real time. And I also put on the slope angle shading, the contour lines with just a normal satellite view. So this is like a little bit of everything, but it gives you an idea of like what I was talking about earlier in that bluff country, that really defined edge before that hillside drops down to that road into that river, and how that might be able to corral deer movement. This is just another example showing how you can stretch the terrain. On the left, we have what it actually looks like if you were to fly over it, and on the right, you have what it looks like extended. And the one really key thing to point out here is that the slope angle shading doesn't change. So if you're stretching that habitat out and you're trying to be able to see a little bit more obviously what it looks like, it's not going to look real, but that slope angle shading will still give you a good idea of the grade, what it actually is and how hard it's going to be able to walk. I know for me, if I see red, it's really tough. Like I'm usually having to put my hands on the slope or be able to grab trees every now and then to get up. But if it's yellow, it's usually not too bad. And sometimes things will look fairly steep and then I'll throw the slope angle shading on it and it's like, oh, it's actually not that bad. Like I probably won't have any issue getting up this hill at all. This is a tool that I, I've used occasionally uh, for hill country. I don't use it a ton, but it's worth mentioning. This one's found on CalTopo. It's a sun shade map. And what you can basically do is for any given location, you can put in a date as well as a time and it'll highlight for you what areas it thinks will be in the shade versus which areas will be in the sun. Now, what it can't tell you is how does, how does the tree canopy play into that, but it can be useful as a planning tool to be able to kind of predict more or less when the thermals might start switching, really in steep areas. And, and there's some areas that you go through and it's like it's steep enough and it's on a northern slope that it never really gets direct sunlight, especially later in the year. It's kind of always in the shade. And a tool like this might be able to help you find that. I've also found that if you look at enough maps and you're, you walk around enough areas, eventually you can start to predict that on your own and you don't necessarily need that tool 
to be able to look at, but it can be a helpful tool to just play around with to help you wrap your head around what the sun and shade are doing and how that might affect thermal flow through a steeper area. Public-private boundaries, I mean, that's pretty self-explanatory. You know, if anybody's got any questions on those in specifics later, um, we can. But, I mean, generally everybody kind of knows what they're looking at when they see those boundaries. The one thing I'll note is that with basically any software, even like county-specific data sources, like it's always a good idea to verify. Sometimes things can be outdated. Sometimes uh, an app that's using an imagery source or a private land boundary source or even like who owns that land, if that information is just going into the county courthouse and they're not providing that data or they're not updating, it's just sitting in a file somewhere, there might be a lag in how accurate that data is. And in some cases you might find an instance where you know, if a piece of public land got sold off or if land changed hands or a new piece got acquired and nobody really knows that that happened yet, some places are really good and it'll be updated almost instantly. Other areas it won't. So it's always a good idea to just double check if you're not quite sure. You know, there's a guy over at the, the Spartan Food Forge booth uh, earlier asking if he was able to access through a little strip of land that appeared to be public. Between, there's like a 40 yard strip between, you know, one piece of private and another along a road. And there's posted signs on basically either side on that private land. And it's like, there's a very good chance you can access through there. But it's probably a good idea just to double check in case the the actual lines are off by a little bit. Sometimes even the county sources, they'll have those lines off, and usually the actual survey stakes are what's real. So it's always just, you know, again, a good idea to double check if in doubt. Crop data is something that I'll use occasionally. The, uh, the maps here, this one's a screenshot from Spartan Forge, but you can also get this kind of data from the states as well where it basically shows you generally what kind of crops are grown in an area. A certain color like yellow for corn, green for soybeans, etc. And where I think it could be helpful is when you're trying to look at the state in a large area and figure out what kind of crops are generally grown there. What I've noticed it doesn't always do a great job of telling you is exactly what's growing in that field this year. So Maybe it's usually corn or beans and it's switching between the two. Maybe it shows corn, but you actually drive there and it's beans that year. It's always good to double check. But if I'm looking at different regions of the state and I see like, oh, this region's usually corn and beans, but up here it's more like wheat and canola and, you know, sugar beets. You might be able to plan your hunt slightly differently based on what type of ag is usually in that area. Soil maps can be another similar type of tool. I picked out Minnesota because it's a very diverse state in terms of the soil quality. Up in the northwest part of, or northeast part of the state, it's mostly just like really rocky soil. It kind of looks like Canada, um, very similar to Ontario, a lot of lakes, a lot of rocks, evergreens. And then in the west part of the state, it's a very fertile farm country. And then along the Mississippi River, kind of coming in from the southeast, again, very fertile farm country. And then in the central part of the state going down that little swath that's kind of in the middle. So if you're playing an out-of-state trip or even like if you're looking to see what your state generally offers, I know there's a lot of people that will talk about, you know, just generally look at the record books, areas with good fertile soil tend to have bigger deer. And I think there can be some truth to that. And you'll definitely still find some oddball places where you get just a giant deer that comes out of an area with really poor soil and one that you wouldn't expect. But at a high level, using this as a planning tool is just another good thing to be able to look at. As far as the records themselves go, 
apart from just generally having a knowledge of where large deer have been taken, I don't put a whole lot of stock into these. For one, they, they tend to be very outdated, at least the ones you can find just freely available on the web. But I think more so than that, there's just a lot of cultural differences between regions of the country that like to enter their deer into the record books and areas that don't. I can tell you that there's areas that have no Popignong entries that I've hunted and no Boone and Crockett entries. You look at a map, it looks like a little white square. It's like, why would I think to go there? But just from having been there and talking to the locals and, and hunting it, and that particular place carries plenty of deer that are like, you know, 160, 170 class occasionally. It's not uncommon occurrence at all. So states like Wisconsin, I think typically, I mean, they've produced a lot of big deer, but I think typically they've also had a culture where people have thought it was, you know, cool or exciting to get their name in the record book. And you'll see that reflected in some of the maps as well. And when people are planning out of state hunts and they're looking for things like this, I think it can sometimes be misleading. Even if you look at states like, you know, Iowa, if you look at certain counties that are just, you know, 50 Boone and Crockett records in this county, and then you look at it, and it's like, oh, well, most of those were in the 2000s. If you look at the last five years, it's been like one, right? So part of that, again, might be a cultural shift. Not as many people are entering their deer, but sometimes I think it can be related to a certain area will blow up and get popular because it's produced a lot of big deer, and then it'll attract a lot more pressure. Hey everybody, Rick here from Fueled by the Outdoors, and I'm here to tell you about a wonderful company, Saddies, custom ammunition and gun works. Aaron Satterfield and his family have been turning out some awesome game loads lately. Uh, I've been using the Saddies Fatties uh, turkey loads, and I gotta tell you, they stop a bird dead. Chris uh, used a 20 gauge this year, I used a 12, Josh used a 20, and uh, my son actually killed one with a 410 this year with uh, one of Saddies loads, and my God, do they put the birds down like crazy. Aaron Satterfield and his family have a wide-ranging array of ammunition, custom game loads, predator loads, turkey loads, the Saddies Fatty, and also they do gun work. Please get a hold of them with any questions that you have in terms of your custom ammunition needs. Go to saddiesllc.com. That's S-A-T-T-I-E-S-L-L-C.com and tell them that Rick from Fueled by the Outdoors sent you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And I kind of talked a little bit about the recency of the information when talking about that example in the river bottom and showing how like flooding information can be shown on the aerial maps. Well, a lot of times forest disturbance can show up and depending on how old or new your maps are, you might not really know what's going on in real time. I have an example here showing an area in northern Wisconsin that I've hunted where it got logged it's still kind of active, I guess, but it started about two years ago. They started logging it. And all of the other maps show that it's still full timbered. And they probably logged 600 acres, where it's just almost completely flat. A couple of oaks that they left up, but for the most part, it's very 
very barren and now starting to grow up with that really successional growth. But if I look at that SAT3 map that's on the app, it's like that one, the imagery is new enough that I can actually look and see which areas have been logged and which ones haven't. And I can see which one of those logging paths are more recently used, still packed down, and then which ones are older and might still have you know, some weeds starting to grow up in them. And maybe that map isn't the most detailed, but it's the most helpful. And so I might still use the LiDAR, I might still use some of the other satellite maps to try and find some of those details, but I'm always bouncing back and referencing against that to make sure that I'm accurate in context of the big picture. And it could be logging as an example, or it could be fire, it could be uh, you know, a number of different things that, you know, it could be a, a subdivision pops up in a place that used to be um, all wooded. And you look at that recent map and it's like, oh, well, I guess I'm not gonna ask permission there because there's all a bunch of houses built up there now whereas there wasn't eight, 10 years ago or whenever most of that satellite imagery was taken. Weather history is something I look at quite a bit as well. Number one, if I'm just trying to get a most common estimate for my access routes, I'm trying to plan those. How can I get in clean and try and figure that out in the off season? But also if I'm planning out of state trips, very commonly I will look at the weather history in relation to wind direction and speed. And you can look at temperature ranges as well and that'll help tell you how to dress. But in this example, I have a, what's called a wind rose shown here. And I can look at this for any specific location and then I can make it specific to a month. So I look at this location, month of October, what is that wind rose telling me? Well, very high probability that I'm getting winds that are either southeast or northwest, but not a whole lot of anything else. And then you can also look at the color coding to be able to see the strength of those winds. Now, how much of those winds are, you know, three to five miles an hour versus 12 to 20 versus 20 plus. And based on that, let's say it's a rut trip and I'm planning to be able to, you know, hill country, I want to be able to find leeward ridges to be able to at least start my, my uh, scouting journey. Well, if I'm looking at 100,000 acres and then I narrow that down to 10,000 acres and then a couple pieces look pretty promising that are, you know, 500, 700 a piece, then I can go through and the first thing I'll do is I'll highlight all of the stuff that makes sense for those two wind directions. And I feel like that gives me like 90% of what I need to start off with, with like 10% of the effort. And you can keep going and marking everything up and then your map just looks like it's totally covered in pins, but that's not always super helpful. Now, if in the days leading up to that trip, I see that, oh, like we're gonna get one of those rare northeast winds. Well, then I got a couple of days to plan for that. But it's generally easier from a planning perspective to be able to look at the most common things. Like I mentioned in the beginning, I find that the more I scout on foot, the better I seem to become at e-scouting. When I was younger, I e-scouted a lot, but it didn't always lead to success. But the more I've hunted and the more I've seen different habitat types, and then I can relate that back to what they look like on the map, I start to become better at saying, well, this looks very similar to another scenario I was in. And therefore I can look at a map and with higher probability predict areas that actually are good. Now maybe it's saying, I know other hunters are gonna key in on this. I know it's a place that gets a lot of other out-of-state hunters this time of year. And maybe I'll start focusing on these secondary features. But ultimately, the more you can kind of bounce back and forth between the two, I think the better off that you'll be. Again, always keeping context in mind, pressure, time of year, crop rotation, et cetera.
I do use color coordination quite a bit when I'm laying my pens down. With something like rubs, like if I find a really big rub, nice, tall, big, heavy tree, you know, or like a tree that's just really raked up, maybe it's a smaller tree, but one that I think has a good probability of being a bigger deer, I usually mark it black just so it stands out because not, it's not as common that I find those. It's just my color scheme. A lot of the deer sign, I'll mark in that brown color just because deer are brown, that you know, works in my mind. If I find other hunter sign, I mark that blue. And I can zoom back out on the map and learn there's a lot of blue sign over here, right? That's an area that other people are hunting quite a bit. For trees that I'm able to climb, a lot of times I'll use green for those. And then with oak trees, I'll usually use the yellow color for white oaks. Or, you know, use white if you have that available as a color option. And I usually use red for any of the red oak or black oak species. The other thing that I'll do, and this again will depend on what you're using you know, like for an app, but I'll use different scrape icons depending on what kind of scrape I find. So majority of the scrapes that I find are not going to be the best of the best scrapes, but I still might be interested in knowing where they're at. And so I'll use an icon like the one up here that's a scrape icon that's got two tracks in it. Whereas if I find that just like money scrape that it's maybe one that I find and you know, 400 acres that's like this is this is the one right this is the one I can throw a camera on and have daylight activity nearly every day for like a two-week span those I'll use the community scrape icon which looks the same but it's just got like four tracks in it instead of two so distribution wise most of my pins will look normal and the few pins that I think are the best if it's a scrape or a rubber or whatever have some kind of differentiation to them and that can be helpful too if I let's say I'm there's a particular deer that I'm really interested in going after. I might mark all of the sign that I think could be from him a certain color, just so when I zoom out on the map, I can get a little bit better feel for what I think that whole area that that buck's using might look like. And then the other thing that I'll do is for mass trees like, acorn, like uh, oak trees with acorns, if I find an oak tree in say off-season scouting, I'll use the oak tree icon. If I go in this time of year and I verify that, yep, it's got acorns this year, I'll switch that pin to an actual acorn icon, which is just my way of being able to say, like, yeah, I don't want to delete all of my oak tree acorns or oak tree icons because it took me a long time to find all those. I still want to leave them there, but I also want some way to differentiate and know which ones are hot this year. So that's just kind of how I do that. And then. In some cases, it can be helpful to combine pins. Let's say you have a trail camera and you also have a scrape, and those pins basically stack on top of one another. And maybe you even forget you had a camera in one spot because you had a rub icon over the top and it just hit it and you forgot, like, oh, I forgot I had a camera there. Um, the Spartan Forge app, and maybe other ones are like this too, will have icons that are kind of dual purpose, where it's maybe a camera icon, but it's got an S in it for like scrape. Right, so then I know if I see an icon like that, I'm like, oh yeah. So now I know just based off of that combination, it was either a camera that I put over a pinch point or it was one I put over a scrape or it was one that I put under a white oak tree for early season sign. And it just makes my map overall a little bit less cluttered. I will very, very frequently put photos in my waypoints. If it's a trail camera, I'll put just a generic photo from that camera on the icon. 
if it is a tree that I want to set up in, I'll take a photo of that tree, and you know sometimes I'll like point to a spot and like oh I want to be you know sit, sitting in this side of the tree facing this direction. So then if I'm going back in there in the dark or I haven't hunted that spot in a couple of years, but sign shows up there and it's like oh yeah we already scouted this area. I want to be this tree most likely because I already figured out that was the best place to sit. What was that tree like again? You know, was it, did I need to be eight feet up? Did I need to be 20 feet up? Did I need to be on the back side of the tree, the front side? How many sticks do I need to bring? That kind of information is just really easy to save right there in the waypoint. So now that we've gotten through a bulk of the background information, maybe we can take a chance to go through some specifics. If anybody has any questions, uh, I do have the live map that I can pull up. And we could go over any kind of specific examples. This again is just kind of showing with a you know, much bigger screen how accurate some of that uh, aerial imagery can be. This is a wintertime photo and you can actually see the deer trails going through. And it almost looks like a person that walked through as well. You can see the difference in how the tracks go through that area. Anybody have any questions or any specific terrain types that they want to have some more information about? If I'm, I'm hunting state, if I'm hunting state land, if I'm hunting state land, how do I look at that and say, okay, here's a league with hill, or here's, how do I go about saying, I want to be What in kind of state land specifically? Give me, give me a scenario. Uh, it's not real hilly. I mean, it's Michigan. You know, we're not, we don't have any. But it does have some. Okay. And there's a river bottom. So down. we'll see if we can find that as an example. Down at one end. Okay. So this piece probably isn't public, but it's maybe somewhat representative. So how I would look at an area like this is I'm looking generally first off for edge and looking for access. So let's say in this scenario we have access points that are along the east side of the road here and maybe one here in the southwest. And then for the sake of argument, let's say that basically everything you can see there is more or less public west of the road and north of the road. So in this area, I have 10-foot contours turned on. I have the aerial imagery turned on. I have the slope angle turned on. And you can't really see much except for like right here. So that's telling me that this place is super, super flat. Now, I might be able to check LIDAR too, although I don't think that the LIDAR is super great in this particular area. But it's always good to double check. Yeah, you can see just a little bit of slight rises in the north and the east there, but otherwise just super, super flat. Now, immediately the things that jump out to me, the creek obviously, and also we have this little bit different type of trees right here. We have edge along this direction. We have edge here, looks like a little you know, wet drainage ditch maybe. Another one coming up right in through there. And then obviously we have this drainage system that comes in here from the southwest that connects to that creek system. So when I'm looking to try and figure out what's my first scouting loop gonna look like, I'll try and figure out how can I get the most amount of information and the least amount of time for that first trip. And whatever I learn on that first trip is going to govern what I do on the second and third trips I go out to scout it. So for me, I would think that 
especially if there's like a you know hunter trail system that goes up around or there's like a little bridge or something that would cross this little wet area that might mean that there's fewer people that are actually hitting this chunk right there maybe nine out of ten guys just goes right across that little bridge to enter in the big part of that land so i might make sure i go and just take a quick loop down there to see if there's not something that's been overlooked sometimes you'll find little gems like that and sometimes you find that like oh no i guess guys are just hunting it because i find that quite a bit too that uh if it's easy access guys will just hit it and other times where it's just purely overlooked i'll walk across this entire edge basically this whole creek system because that seems to be where it, you have the maximum amount of diversity so probably in that first trip i would just walk down one side all the way down to here maybe hit it down to the road and then walk all the way back now i know that that's probably the thing that's standing out to a lot of other people as well but there's probably going to be certain things that i learn just by doing that initial loop like maybe i find that you know betting off of the property there seems to be a lot of deer coming in from a certain location or maybe I find that I think the deer could be betting on the public in some of this creek bottom area, and then they're moving out. Maybe in this area, the deer kind of shift in from you know September. You guys, I think I have an October 1st opener. So they probably already started moving into this area by the time the season starts. And then it's just a matter of right how much pressure is there and where does that pressure come from. This area is pretty small. It's probably, I don't know, a couple hundred acres that we're looking at, which compared to some of the stuff that I've have hunted quite a bit more recently. It's actually kind of small. I tend to like a little bit bigger areas just because that gives me an opportunity to get away from some of that pressure. But I know Michigan gets hit pretty heavy. And if you had a spot like this, I'd imagine opener bow season, you might have eight, 10 trucks, if, if not more, right? So really with that in mind, the focus to me comes about finding the overlooked spots. And I know that that means I'm probably gonna have to spend more time scouting this than I would in an area that has fewer hunters overall and like in my state we have a ton of gun hunters but not as many bow hunters and the bow hunters that are there are usually on average not as hardcore um but from a gun season perspective it's like uh, i i've because i grew up in wisconsin and the number of hunters that i see gun hunting in, in uh, public places in minnesota far exceeds in a lot of scenarios and their gun seasons during the rut so it's just a different dynamic every state that you go to but I'm going to probably expand that initial scout along that creek to look at this entire edge, to walk that edge of that. I see underneath here there's another little tiny drainage system. It looks like it kind of makes a square there. I'll walk all of that stuff because maybe what I'll find is that there's, you know, some brushier, you know, shrubs or whatever along that water edge, and maybe that's a place that deer are using as bedding. That might not be traditionally what you would think, but if everybody else is walking past it, it might be a spot where a buck can just sit there and kind of watch people go by. And he gives him just enough of an edge where he can get out of there. I also think about those little things as, as access tools, right? Depending on how easy it is to walk through those little drainage systems, maybe I could use that just to keep ground scent lower for a large portion of the walk. Same thing with the creek. I'm going to eventually walk this whole edge as well. I like how there's a whole bunch of different tree types kind of mixing in this area right here, this little pocket. I like how you got that creek bottom, you got some evergreen looking trees, you got this you know, kind of flatter swampy looking tree, and then you got what looks like maybe a little bit of a, a more open mature, like there might even be some oaks in there. So I really like the way that this overall area looks in general. But ultimately, I, based on the pressure piece, I figure that this is a type of property that I would have to learn over a couple of years. 
I might find a lot of hunter sign and I might find some things that look good that first year, but then I'm going to try and adapt based on what I saw that first year and just kind of keep iterating from there. You know, it's, it's never a one and done prospect, especially in places that have a lot of pressure to really learn the ins and outs. And maybe it's year three before you find that one little pocket that truly was overlooked that just doesn't really pop anyway else. Anybody else have a question? So what would be like your optimum first time to look at it? And then maybe give an example if it's not that time and it's maybe like mid-October, what would your first look be? Generally speaking, I always like walking places in early spring or if there's a lot of water late winter. If I can walk on a place that's frozen, that's going to be significantly easier than walking on a place where the ice is starting to break up or it's even just, you know, a lot of snow melt. So in cases like that, I like to walk late winter and hopefully there's not a lot of snow. Like prime scouting conditions is like there's still ice, but the snow is mostly melted. And sometimes that's only like a couple day window, if that. And sometimes the ice starts melting underneath the snow and you really don't get that opportunity. But when all that snow is melted, the woods basically look just like they looked back in the fall. And so all of the sign is really just out there. And at that point, it's a matter of deciphering what time of year was the sign made. One of the things that I fell victim to, you know, kind of early on was I would see sign, especially rut sign that time of year, and think that it was just going to be a good place to hunt. And so I'd come back there opening weekend and not see anything. And be like, oh, man, I thought the spot was going to be great. Well, over time, you learn that that area is used for a specific reason at a specific time of the year, and it might take you a little bit to figure that out. But the point is, that time of year, everything is very visible. It's very visible from, number one, you can see a long ways through the understory. You don't have to worry about weeds and ferns and tall grass and whatever else. Number two, scrapes are really obvious to see. Rubs are really obvious to see. And beds a lot of times are pretty obvious to see. And sometimes you'll find beds that just have a bunch of shed hair in them. It's like, oh, this is obviously a bed because there's you know, a ton of hair in it. Now, if it's another time of year that I would say is second best, for me, it would be in season. The problem with in season, of course, is like you're walking that fine line between not being too obtrusive and also at the same time, like if you're just blowing everything up, you could be you know, screwing up other guys' hunts that are trying to hunt the same property. And that's always kind of a tight line to walk, which is where like the more information you can get outside of the season, generally the better. But in season is great because not only can you see just like you could in the early spring, but also you can see when exactly sign is popping up. I mean, so many of the deer that I've killed over the last three years have been not in areas that I would have necessarily predicted I was going to be sitting when I left the truck. Maybe I have an idea in mind, you know, how I want to go sit, let's say, right here. It sets up really good for that wind, right? And then I, I kind of take a little detour and I get in here and it's like, oh man, this, this scrape has just hit. Like, there's a nice big fresh track in it. And also there's this other bedding cover that they could be coming from. And I know other guys might have been hunting up in that area too. Well, then you just go sit right there. You can learn that information in the spring, but you're not going to know the exact week or time to hunt there. But if you find it in real time, it's like, well, it's hunting right now. And a lot of the, the opportunities that I've had have been that type of scenario where I just, on a whim, say, this makes sense right now. You set up, it's the first time in, and you get that opportunity. Winter, I only like usually scouting specific to late season. 
there's a lot of snow on the ground, then, you know, if most of the hunting pressures die down, like some of our seasons in Wisconsin go out, you know, through January. It's usually not a lot of guys hunting in January. And maybe if a tag is filled or, or whatever the case is, I just feel like scouting or maybe I, I say the information is more important than trying to fill a tag for future years. I know a buck is out here, but I don't know what he's doing. I might try and cut that specific deer, uh, deer's tracks and just scout, and I know what he's doing then that time of year. Maybe you can capitalize on it, maybe not, but in future years, if that deer's still alive, I know what either he or other deer who pick up that you know, same habitat are gonna be doing. And sometimes that information for the future, I think is more helpful than real time just trying to fill that one tag. Just wondered if uh, you could touch again on judging tree top tree height uh, based off the imagery in here. Is there a specific tool for that in Spartan Forge, or is it just a matter of looking at the imagery and judging the shadow, like you said before? So, this is not any specific area. We found this over. It looked like it just had nice, you know, wintertime imagery. So it's not like this is anybody's spot that I know of, right? Obviously, somebody's hunting there, but with this imagery. This one pops really nicely because not only can you see the trees, but you can also see the shadows. And in a lot of these cases, you can tell if the tree is laying down, how it's angled, does it have a split? Like we got that tree in the, in the right there that looks like it's a triple trunk. And we can get a really good idea for how, number one, tall the trees are, but also how they lay out. I'll see if I can find another good example here. Yeah, so like right here, can you see how those three trees in the middle pop? They're taller than everything kind of around it, just based on the shadow height. Same thing right here with that little cluster right there, just based again. You know, a lot of times, a lot of times the little spruce trees and pine trees and things of that nature can be really tough to tell on green imagery how big they are. But if you look at a map where you can see the shadow, it becomes a lot easier. But here's another thing too. You know how, generally speaking, these images are taken from straight up. So if I'm looking at this tree right here, number one, I can see it's hanging over the water. Number two, I can clearly see that whole side of the tree. So I know that that tree is definitely leaning toward the water, even though it seems like the shadow itself might be going more straight, just like all the other trees, just the way that the sun is angled. It's like, if you're just looking at the shadow, it's like, oh, that might be you know a straight up and down tree, but by the other clues, you can tell that it's not. And then I can also see that this tree underneath it it maybe doesn't look like much, but you can see how that shadow is shaped, right? And you can see kind of how that tree is put together and where it branches respect to how long those different segments of the tree are. And this is kind of like where I was talking about where if you see, if you see a tree that's shaped like that, it's like, oh, maybe I could, you know, hang in this split right here. And when you hunt a certain spot over and over, you can start to get a little bit better gauge for with that imagery okay, that sun is probably at this kind of an angle. I know that it's winter, so generally the sun's gonna be a lot lower in the sky than it would be, you know, summertime imagery, it's gonna be a lot more top down, so the shadows just aren't gonna look as long as they do this time of year. But those are all clues that you can kind of take in to be able to get that tree information. And, you know, tree species too, like if you get good at determining, like this is what an oak tree looks like in this habitat, or, you know, any other kind of tree type, you know, like sycamore trees, whenever I've been down to Missouri, they seem to really stand out and be very obvious looking, just with their size and how the bark looks and, and that sort of thing. So that'd be like another common type of tree species that you could pick out. Um, any kind of 
regrowth that comes up after like a log operation or, or a fire, like aspen trees, you know, popples, things of that nature, can be really obvious to see as well. And you can kind of get a gauge for how high those are because if they have a logging operation that's, you know, staggered, you can tell like, oh, this, this is probably about, you know, five years compared to the other one. And if you have the aerial imagery going far enough back, you can figure that out as well. But sometimes you don't always have that information available. Yeah, there's maybe a good example of that one as well. So again, just looking at the shape of the tree in the shadow. As a point of almost wrapping up, does anybody else have any other questions for Garrett? Nothing. All right, Garrett. You definitely went in depth on this one. It was very entertaining. Even though I couldn't see everything happening, uh, it was fascinating kind of hear everything on the back end. If you all have any other questions, especially maybe you don't want to talk in front of everybody else, you can meet, over, uh, meet Garrett over at the Spartan Forge booth here in just a moment. So thank you all for joining us.